Welcome to Being Human. I'm delighted to welcome today Roy Baumeister, social psychologist, uh, highly successful author of many couple of decades standing now with several books, including the New York Times bestseller, Willpower. Roy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Richard. Glad to be here. So, so let's start with uh, let's start with Willpower, which was the book that was recommended to me by none other than David Allen. He's a, a former guest on the show. Um, what, yeah, what do we mean by Willpower, and why why was it so important for you to write about? Well, um, it was important because well, it's one of the keys to success in life. But self control is a is a is the trait. Willpower is the energy that powers self control. Um, and understanding how self-control works is uh, really vital. Um, I came to this, I started out studying self-esteem early in my career because we had the hope that boosting people's self-esteem would uh, make them better, happier, um, better for themselves and better for society. Uh, but self-esteem didn't really deliver on its promises very well. Uh, boosting self-esteem just kind of makes people more conceited and uh, doesn't produce other than, you know, it feels good while you're enjoying thinking how great you are. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of positive uh, consequences. But self-control seems to be the real deal. It uh, uh, really does uh, produce all sorts of benefits to life, both for the individual and society. So it's a uh, win uh, on both sides. Uh, so people with good self-control um they do better at work and school they're more popular they have better relationships uh, they're happier they're healthier uh they stay out of trouble they have uh, fewer personal behavioral problems and they live longer right oh that's interesting they live yeah to, for long longevity and and in terms of the the, the sort of so, so if self-control is one of these these key traits that predict success what have you learned in terms of how we can develop our self-control or become better at self-control over time? What have you discovered then? Well, um, first is understanding how it works. Um, what my research found was that uh, it, it seems to depend on, uh, on an energy, hence the term willpower, which we adopted very reluctantly. Psychologists hesitate to pick up terms from popular discourse because they have a lot of excess meanings on them. But no, there really did seem to be a kind of uh, energy in it so that after you exert self-control, um, it's as if you expended some of the energy. So if another demand for self-control comes along, uh, you don't tend to do as well. That there's a, it's as if you've used up some of your, your willpower and until it has a chance to replenish, uh, you're down. It's a bit like a muscle that uh, after you exert it, it's tired. Uh, so it doesn't uh, perform quite as well until you get a chance to, to rest and recover. Um, and people continue to find all sorts of uh, uh, effects going on uh, like this that uh, um, as the day wears on, for example, people gradually get tired. I mean, if it's a day at the beach and you're not uh, working very hard, well, then you have all your self-control resources available in the evening. But uh, if it's a day at work, uh, uh, you gradually expend some of your self-control, being nice to people, following the rules, um, making yourself do things you don't necessarily want to do, which is one definition of work. Um, and so uh, 
um, in in the evening after the long day, your willpower tends to be low. And a lot of the problems in self-control tend to surface in the evening. So people break their diets mostly in the evening, not first thing in the morning. Uh, crime sprees, you know, low self-control is one of the key explanations to uh, criminality. <clears throat> but uh, people don't leap out of bed first thing in the morning and go on a crime spree or a drug spree or a sex spree or anything like that. Uh, most impulsive crimes are committed after midnight. Uh, in fact, uh, as I said, diets broken in the evening, uh, drug relapses, uh, smoking too much, drinking too much, sleeping with the wrong person, uh, being nasty to your romantic partner and you're not controlling your emotions properly. All these things become more likely late in the day uh, after people have expended uh, some of their uh, some of their energy and willpower. We found in the laboratory, it seems to work even in the short run. If we can give people a challenging first self-control task uh, that uses up some of their energy and then we come around and hit them with another task, uh, even if it seems quite different, they don't do as well on the second one. Right. And uh, the, the, the famous case that I noted in the book is of the, the judges. They did the study, Israeli researchers studied parole, parole, parole board judges uh, in terms of the decisions they make over yes. the course of the day. And how... Yes, that was not my study, but uh, I know you guys did it. But uh, uh, yes, I mean... I mean, the safe thing, the easy thing for the parole judges is just say no, 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 and send them all back to prison. If you're taking a chance to send them out into society, uh, if they commit another crime, it makes the judge look bad. Uh, but some of the men have paid their debt and have reformed and so on. And it, uh, what they found is first thing in the morning, uh, the, the guys that come up first have a pretty good chance of getting parole. Uh, but this goes down uh, as the day wears on, uh, with two exceptions, when the judge gets a break and gets something to eat. Uh, you know, lunchtime being the big one, um, then the likelihood of granting parole goes goes up again. It's because, uh, uh, as far as you can tell, your willpower is based partly on your body's energy supply, and that comes from food. So, when you get more food, uh, then it's more willing to expend energy again uh, on this uh, challenging sort of thing. Right, and um, and I also on the on the prison team, I also. One statistic I found fascinating, I think they've done this study in Finnish prisons and they found that glucose intolerance was a, was a good predictor of future criminality of, of prisoners leaving prison, right? Recidivism amongst the, amongst the leavers from prison. Yes, yes. Uh, that one's, I don't remember as, uh, as clearly now, but, uh, uh, but the general point is, is quite relevant. Uh, you know, glucose, I don't know how much your, your uh, viewers uh, know about glucose, but it's it's a chemical in the bloodstream that carries the body's energy. I mean, it, it means sugar, but it's it's not just sugar. I and mean, you get glucose from eating meat or, or any sort of thing. Um, and so it carries you know, carries uh, this energy, the, the blood carries this energy around to your brain, to your muscles, to your other organs, uh, and the body uh, manages it. And when your glucose starts to go down, uh, well, self-control is one of the things you're your body would rather sacrifice than some of the more vital things uh, uh, that it needs to keep body and soul together. So uh, self-control tends to deteriorate them. So yes, people who have problems with glucose 
are more more trouble with uh, more prone to self-control failure. Uh, that uh, includes, so we talked about people with diabetes who, who actually may have plenty of glucose, but it doesn't do them any good because without the insulin, they're not processing it. So it, it doesn't function as uh, uh, as energy as effectively and they uh, get into that uh, state where they don't can't can't use it and so they're more prone to impulsive behaviors and uh, uh, mood swings and, and other sorts of things mm. and I found that in terms of my own daily practice now I'm becoming much more aware having read your book about my glucose level and where I dip and I noticed absolutely at the end of the day that I'm way more likely to engage in let's say compulsive behaviors and so I'm, I'm like giving my trying to set up my day because you talk about this a pre-commitment right like trying to and I'm, i know i'm conflating two ideas slightly here but this so for me it's like trying to set up my day such that my i don't have major glucose dips especially when i know i'm going to do something that's maybe depleting of of my energy towards the end of the day and so i i uh i do regular therapy sessions and i know that after therapy i'm usually feeling like super low energy yeah, it takes a lot out of you for sure. Yeah, it's quite like intense, and I notice that's when I'm, I'm often most vulnerable to engage in activities I prefer not to be engaging in. So, so this has given me the thought: well, how could I set my day up such that I make sure that I've got a meal ready, like as soon as I come out of the, the session, and I have a good meal beforehand, and I keep my glucose high, especially when I know I'm most likely to to have a dip. Um, so that's an extreme example, but also just working during the day where I need brain power and will, willpower, should I say, to be productive during the day is to, to, to monitor my glucose. Yes, all of it's very important, and, and that's a nice model for uh, people to follow. If you plan ahead and understand it's, uh, it's uh, the amount of willpower you have available fluctuates through the day, and it's tied to your body's energy supply. Uh, so be prepared for that, and uh, it's, it's why even things like uh, I read a study where people who are trying to quit smoking and diet to lose weight—if they're trying to do both—they do a lousy job of both. Well, they both place demands on your on your willpower. Dieting itself is, is particularly a problem because you're not eating enough, uh, so you're not getting enough energy. So there's a, a kind of a circular problem or a catch twenty two uh, that you you don't have enough energy to have the willpower to resist the food. So and to the extent you resist it, you can still don't get the food that you, you need. Um, so planning in that way and, and managing it as a, as a limited resource, you know, like you do, you, you know, you're going to be uh, wiped out at this point. Well, you're built in, uh, be prepared uh, with something to eat and uh, some kind of break uh, to allow your powers uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to replenish. I talked to a guy who does um, marital therapy, and uh, he, he said, he had, before he even knew my research, uh, he said he kind of stumbled on a similar thing. He started telling his clients to go home early and spend more time together. He didn't know why that worked. You'd think you're having a bad marriage, spending more time together might cause problems. But he said if you stay at work and use up all your, your energy there, all your willpower, uh, then you get home and the first time something bothers you, you fly off the handle. And so save some of your energy, save some of your, your self-control willpower uh, to go so that you can make yourself be nice and try to patch up the, uh, the, the relationship. Right. To so go home. Yeah. So that, that, and that's, 
Yeah, I mean, this is what's interesting to me as well is what you, you, you mentioned in the book that we haven't evolved any mechanisms that allow us to detect that we're low on willpower, right? We get no sign right. to say, right. uh-oh, yeah. I'm, I'm low on willpower, I better eat some food. or take. We don't have any intuition that we're in that state, right? Right. Yeah, the closest is... Uh... We found it, it seems to turn up the volume on life. The, the things strike you more intensely. Uh, uh, we're still trying to figure that out, although our colleague who was doing this research with us temporarily off on doing some other things. But uh, it seems like as you grow up, you learn to damp down all your emotional reactions and, and play cool. And my impression is that's part of what we love about children is they react so strongly to everything. You know, the heart is totally on the sleeve, as they say. Uh, and so they haven't yet learned to uh, be cool and, and hide it down. Well, when you're an adult, you kind of have this process that's damping down your, uh, your reactions. Uh, but when you get depleted, uh, things, things hit you much harder, both, both for good and for bad. So that's that's one sign, but uh, you know it's not a very clear or strong one. It would be nice if we had a, a, a clearer signal that uh, oh, better be careful. Self control is not working as well as usual, and uh, I'll be prone to making bad decisions or doing things I'll be sorry for. Right, and so a lot of these common sense routines sort of make sense in the light of this, right? You know, having regular meal times, you know, getting home early and having a good meal and. Uh, having the, the evening to spend with your wife or your partner or your, your husband and so on, they seem to make sense in, in light of this research, right? Yes. <laughs> Develop social practices which seem to account for this without us being particularly aware of this particular mechanism. Hmm. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so, so the other thing I touched on there was this idea of, of pre-commitment. So one of the tactics we can use, and, and a lot of people who are renowned as having great willpower use, is this idea of pre-commitment. Can you talk a bit more about what that means and, and how people... Okay. Well, pre-commitment, um, as the term implies, it's making the commitment in advance uh, so that you're not making the decision in the heat of the moment. And you can make the decision when you've got your full powers about you, uh, and uh, um, that way, at the moment when you might be in a moment, you know, the term a moment of weakness is very apt. It means that your your willpower is down. <clears throat> and so you'll have a moment of weakness, and people know that's when you do bad things, that when self-control breaks down and you spend too much money or go back to smoking or drinking or, or whatever it is, sleep with the wrong person. Um, so... Uh, it, Pre-commitment is locking yourself in in advance. And my friend George Lowenstein, I think, remarked once that, uh, well, it's easy to decide to diet when you're not hungry. <laughs> uh, but uh, people do, and they go on a diet. One form is they get rid of all the candy and chips and, and fattening foods um, so that you know, late at night when they're in a more vulnerable perhaps more of a weak moment, uh, they're not tempted because they, they, they can't eat that stuff. If it's there and available, uh, even though you tell yourself, I shouldn't eat those things, well, uh, at, at the moment when you're tempted and you want a treat, then you, you, you might go ahead and do it. The same thing, pre-commitment with uh, savings. People have trouble saving money. Uh, but uh, they sign up to have something automatically deducted from their paycheck and put in a bank account, uh, and it's uh, 
somehow locked in so they can't uh, simply take it out and, and spend it. Well, um, they are, I mean, I think the original pre-commitment was uh, Ulysses or Odysseus coming back from the siege of Troy and tying himself to the mast so that he could listen to the siren song and not be tempted to seize the wheel and steer the boat onto the rocks, which uh, uh, so many other sailors had done. Um, you uh, you make that commitment. It, it, it means not... Uh, the two ways of looking at it means not relying on willpower to get you through the, the most difficult, tempting moment. Uh, but in a sense, it's a more enlightened use of willpower because you have to plan in advance and make those commitments. Um, and we find that the people who have good self-control, you know, I think we all know some people are better at self-control than other people. Um, so people who are good at it, it's not that they have more willpower. That's a misconception. And we wondered about that for a while, but no. In the laboratory, we put them through their paces. They look like anybody else. But what they do is they use it with these things like pre-commitment. They, they set up their lives to run on automatic pilot. They, they break bad habits and they form good habits. Uh, and then life goes, uh, goes smoothly. So you know, I think I mentioned just before this, I was having my exercise workout. You know, when you take up exercise, if you haven't ever done it, you, it's a big struggle to get yourself to go out there and run or whatever, and you have to use a fair amount of willpower to uh, to do it. But you lock yourself in, and you, know, you have a habit, and just going to do it every day at a certain time. Uh, then it becomes uh, something that you don't have to use a lot of energy uh, to uh, to do. It doesn't require that much willpower. It's just oh, it's time to go exercise. Um, likewise, people pre-commit with uh, social commitments. So. Uh, you know, you arrange to meet your friend to go running at nine in the morning or five at night or whenever, uh, and then you know the other person is uh, is waiting for you, and so you, it's not up to you. You don't really have the option of not doing it. <laughs> One thing that worked for me early on was having a dog who loved to go running and uh, uh, come home from work tired, and I said, oh, I don't know if I can go running today, and the dog is like, are you kidding me? Uh, he's been looking forward to it all day. Uh, so there was uh, having the dog and having the dog have the habit of the, the regular run late in the day. Yeah, that was a, a kind of pre-commitment and, and it, it takes the strain off of, uh, of needing willpower to make all your decisions. Mm. You, you touch on there about this idea of making a commitment to somebody else. Can that be useful in terms of, sort of commitment to your peers or publicly? Oh, yes. So these are some of the best ones. I know a lot of people have these uh, uh, watches now that keep track of how many steps you take, and they have a target of 8,000 or 10,000 steps during the day or whatever. Uh, but the ones who do this publicly, you know, they'll join a group who every day will post how many they do. Well, then it's harder to slack off because the other people are saying, oh, I see you only went 3,000 steps yesterday. What are you becoming a couch potato? Uh, so. Uh, uh, yes, again, uh, people respond very much to how they're perceived by others, and uh, social commitments are really, uh, uh, really helpful in a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. It's uh, one of these ways uh, that uh, you know, marriages can make people better. You know, sometimes you know one person has to uh, uh, change the diet for health reasons or whatever, and so the other kind of embraces that and says, "Okay, well, we'll both eat this healthy food together," and, uh, and you know that makes it easier and uh, um, and 
strengthens the, the commitment and you're less tempted to, you know, if you're eating your boring, healthy food while everyone else is having uh, steak and French fries and uh, um, fried chicken and all sorts of delicious things. Well, that's, that's a little hard, but uh, um, doing it with others, uh, that helps and, uh, and everybody stays good. All right. And I, I think you mentioned there's a software service you could sign up to that would like one example was it would email all of your browser history to your to your boss at a scheduled time right yes so yes this idea of, yeah um as a as an upfront commitment to to monitoring so you talk about that and the quantified self and this idea of of monitoring yourself and then and then making that public can you talk a bit about that uh, sure. Um, this this part was more uh, my co-author John Tierney uh, uh, wrote the book with me. Um, who's a, a science journalist, um, but uh, the way he sort of summed it up is that you know we have new challenges in self-control today. You can, you know, it's not like when you carried around cash in your pocket and when it was gone, it was gone, so you couldn't get into too deep a trouble. Uh, he said, now with credit and everything, and you can go online and in 20 minutes ruin your budget for the rest of the year. Um, on the other hand, there are technology can be your friend too and can bolster and, and help self-control by uh, using some of these uh, online services that will track uh, all your expenditures and send you feedback and saying, oh, you spent more money than usual on beer last week or... Uh, um, um, you're exceeding your target, and so you can can get feedback that can can help uh, uh, restore self control again. Um, technology, in a variety of ways, is uh, is improving um, self control. I mean, even in morality, which is one of the major applications of self control throughout throughout history, it, it takes self control to be a good person because it means not acting on your selfish impulses but doing what's good and right and as we got into bigger and bigger cities and more anonymity uh, people had more of a chance that they could just get away with things and do things that others couldn't do but now that there are cameras starting to appear everywhere and people have phones that capture things now people have to uh, watch what they're doing much more and, and keep keep track of or, or worry that uh, their misdeeds will be will be known to others and posted online um, so uh, technology really is a double-edged sword in terms of self-control it, it can can weaken as well as strengthen uh, mm. that's interesting well, I just think about the argument about our lives becoming um, more public again through technology we sort of had this period where we were able to keep right private lives and i've read online someone making the point that actually the norm for humans is to have actually very public lives and this idea of a right to privacy is relatively new in human history yes yes uh, quite a bit about this is the argument that people were hardly ever alone in the past and plus you didn't meet very many strangers uh you go back to medieval europe and people lived in farming villages and everybody knew everybody uh one scholar estimate that a person might only see a hundred other human beings in this as their entire life in a small village like that. But there wasn't much travel. You didn't go places. Other people didn't come there. Uh, and so if you did something bad, people would know it for years afterwards. It would affect your reputation on that. It was a powerful force. Uh, 
great ideas, I think, in, in Friedman's uh, History of Law, uh, says that morality and law do the same things, but morality relies on reputation. And so as we have more and more stranger interactions, people can cheat someone and get away with it. And so we need laws to step in and, and take the place of morality. But now with the uh, uh, technology coming out, uh, strengthening this, then uh, uh, people are accountable uh, in a way that... Uh, kind of goes back to like living in a small village, except you're accountable to uh, to millions of people who can see what you did wrong. Right, and then this is, so the Chinese are developing this sort of social score, aren't they? And then there was a, a lot of headlines recently about Facebook have some version of a social score for you. And there's a lot of outrage around it and fear around it, I think understandably at some level, but yeah, perhaps again, this is an example of us going back to something that was actually normal for humans. Yes, uh, I don't know the details of these things, but uh, uh, but yes, it's the same with uh, you know, rating services and companies and so on. They can't just uh, come and uh, offer you poor service uh, because people will rate them and their reputation matters. I noticed the, the Uber car service, uh, the drivers rate the passengers and the passengers rate the drivers. And well, that's a pretty good incentive to be to be nice on both sides. Yeah, I was devastated when I discovered my Uber score, which was 4.6, and apparently that's pretty low. Uh, and, it, and it had a big impact. I'm like, damn, I, I should be upping my game with being polite, being polite to drivers. Apparently one of the biggest reasons for an Uber passenger getting a low score is showing up late. And so I, I've been really upping my consciousness about, you know, making sure I'm on, on time for the Uber. And, yes. Um, and, and I didn't expect to have that much of a wreck because on the one hand, why do I really care? You know, it's not, it doesn't sort of affect me in any other area of my life, whether I've got a good Uber score. And apparently you have to have a really, really low Uber score before they won't like pick you up. Um, but there was, there was some sense of pride and uh, this knowing that I was below average actually was the biggest motivator. No. Yes, well, I think my guess is that we evolve to care very much about what other people think of us, and that's that's one of the key uh, human advances. Um, and there are complicated arguments around that, but um, self-control, which again is much more advanced in humans than in other species, was probably to adjust ourselves to the social group and motivated by concern with uh, with reputation. We evolved to cooperate. You know, we're not great hunters by ourselves, uh, but we're terrific hunters as as, as groups. Um, and uh, um, for that, you have to cooperate with others. And if others don't like you, they're not going to work with you. Well, you, you'd starve. Right. And I think you make the argument that that, that we evolved our very large brains and high intelligence was to navigate. I think you make the point more in your book that the, the cultural element, right? That it was to navigate culture and our social network more than problem solving, let's say. Right, yes, yes. I think uh, even the, the key human trait is that set us apart. We, we name ourselves after intelligence, homo sapiens. Uh, but uh, uh, communication, I think, was the original one, the social sharing of information. We do that much more than other species. Um, and development of language and so on. And, you know, that's intelligence was a result of that because, you know, a brain is a very costly organ. Um, and so if you grew a big brain, unless it's going to bring you more food or something, it will just use a lot more calories and, and again, increase the risk of, of, of starving. Um, 
So there had to be stuff for the brain to do. And it's when we started sharing information, uh, that's when uh, there was a selection environment that you know suddenly the brain had a lot more information to deal with. Uh, and so bigger brains would pay off in a way that they hadn't when, uh, when we lived like chimpanzees. Right. And then uh, one example of the information sharing that you use, which I thought was poignant, was the, this idea that we're intentional teachers. And when they've studied chimps, um, a chimps might chimps might learn a new trick, like I don't know how to smash open a nut or something. But they won't then they won't in, um, in teach it to other chimps. They don't. They don't have right. Yes. Impulse, we just uh, read someone who reviewed all the literature and I said intentional teaching. I mean, there's learning everywhere. Uh, most animals learn, but teaching is pretty specific to humankind. All known cultures do some form of teaching. They don't all have universities and so on, uh, but uh, old ones deliberately try to teach the young ones and people share skills and so on. Um, and they said, there's nothing really in any other species that's a full-fledged example of, uh, of, of teaching. And there are a couple things, sometimes a grown-up animal will bring a dead mouse or whatever for the little one to play with and kill. But it, it, it isn't really... You know, that could be a hardwired thing, and it, it isn't clear that it has the idea that I know something you don't, and so let me show you how to do this. Whereas, again, all, all humans do. So, yes, that's a, that's a crucial thing, and, and it sets us apart uh, as, as humankind. Right. And actually, there's a, there's a couple of other themes in, in the cultural animal I'd love to explore, but just before we dive into that, just just finally on, on the willpower point, um, I mean... This this podcast is. We hope that this has a, a, a broad range of listeners in in business. Um, have you ever worked with with managers or ex executives and been asked the question, you know, what should I do for my team, or how could I take some of these learnings and use them in the workplace? Is that something you've explored? I have not done that. I'm a basic laboratory uh, researcher, so trying to figure out the basic processes, <clears throat> and then. Uh, I come with also I work in different areas trying to come up with a large uh, abstract understanding of what, what being human is all about. But uh, um, applications, it's tremendously important, but someone else will have to do that. Okay. Okay. Um, no, that, that makes sense. Um, read the book, perhaps. <laughs> and I think, because okay, okay. I, I, certainly what I've taken from it is, is learning about this has, has been instructive. Because uh, one of the things that I got was, you know, decision making is, it's a calorific activity, right? And, it, and we deplete over time. So the more decision making we do, the, um, the less capacity we have to do more high quality decision making. Yeah, well, that's, a, that's a key point is that making decisions uses up willpower too. Uh, and this was a big step for us. Uh, so it, it isn't, willpower is not just for self-control, uh, but after you um, make a lot of decisions, your self-control is likely to be worse, and vice versa. After you exert self-control, uh, it's going to affect your decision-making. Uh, so that's something that, uh, that on the few times I have talked to uh, business people and so on, that, uh, um, that they found useful uh, to know. It, it explains sort of the work-family um, interactions that, you know, if you're having problems at home in the family, that's going to suck up a lot of your uh, willpower, and uh, you're not going to have as much so at work. 
you'll be more crabby, poor, self-control, more impulsive, and also your decision-making may not be as thorough and thoughtful. Uh, people with uh, uh, low willpower changes how they make decisions, they're more uh, using shortcuts, uh, they don't sort through the information as well to say I should make the decision based on these three things and ignore these things that are uh, either swayed by everything. Um, they're also more prone to put off decisions uh, uh, if they can. Uh, basically, there are several styles of decision-making. You can think things through carefully and rationally and so on, or you can make them in a more shallow, impulsive manner. And uh, when willpower is low, it drifts toward toward the latter. Uh, you got tough decisions to make. You want to make them in the morning, not uh, you know, at the end of a hard day. Right, and uh, or if you've got, or if you've got things that you you resist doing, um, and I think somebody there's the book Eat Your Frog, which is this idea that the the thing that you most resist doing, do that first thing in the morning. Do that because that's when your your willpower, right. self control to stick with that uncomfortable task is going to be at its highest. Right. Yes. Um, and I've actually said so what was interesting is I'd started to recall because one of the things I hate doing and part of my job is to do sales call right to do outreach call customers and call prospects and you know I, that's a bit of my job that I find the most difficult to sort of put myself into and uh, and since I've started doing that like that's the second I check my emails and then I start on that and put it for I found that I've got much more of a rhythm doing that than when I was sort of scheduling it in somewhat on an ad hoc basis i'm yeah. completely consistent now with having read read your material okay good um so that was the that was the one insight and i thought and that, that as a message for teams as well like maybe as a team what you want to do is if you know as a team you've got something that's really tough and you've been resisting and you've all been putting off maybe you commit to doing it and then maybe there's a pre-commitment so you say okay well we're going to schedule it in the diary for monday morning and we're all yeah. going to clear up and we're all going to do it and we're going to do it at a time when we know our, all of our glucose levels are going to be relatively high. That was one, one thought I had about how you could apply it. Um, and I suspect there's some level of that that goes on in any case. It's just becoming consciously aware of why we do some of these things that feel like common sense, but actually there's a lot of good science now behind why we might do them. Yeah. Um, something that I wanted to pick up on the on the cultural so the other insight here which sort of takes it a bit more into my personal experience around uh, self-control has been that I've spent a lot of time working through therapy which I touched on earlier on some of my earlier experiences mm -hmm. and going back and reliving some of those experiences and I've found that I have become less compulsive over time the more work I've done now of course, maybe there's some other reason, but my intuition is that this therapy work has been uh, key and instrumental and certainly one of the causes of me developing more self-control over time. And, it, and it, I think the, the, uh, the earlier experiences, it may just be for me, those are the, when I had the most traumatic experiences, but it, for, for me, it seems to be the work on that very early period has had the biggest impact. And I noticed in the cultural animal when you you in the chapter how people think you talk you, you have some skepticism about early memories and the idea of recovered memories from early in childhood and it's actually it's been my intrinsic memory so not the 
not the declarative memory, not the memory that I have a sort of clear picture in my mind, but a sort of felt sense of what happened early, early on where I've done the work and processed some of and, and grieved around some of those experiences that have had the biggest impact in terms of me feeling that I'm better able to control my impulses. So I just wanted to get your reflections on that. All right. Uh, um, that may or may not have to do with it, a self-control thing, but if, if you have unresolved issues from the past, uh, it's very possible that those are a constant drain on your willpower. Um, there's, there's one theory that uh, uh, might well be true is that what really takes the energy is, is uh, inhibiting things, is uh, overriding, stopping uh, things. And so if you have a difficult memory that you're trying to shut out of your mind and it keeps coming back and you're, you're struggling with it, well, that's, that's, it's going to be like a leak in the gas tank. You know, <laughs> It's going to be uh, constantly taking some of your energy, even when you're doing stuff that has nothing to do with that. Uh, it just always uh, eats at you and takes away some of your energy. So uh, quite possibly facing it and resolving it in your mind and coming to an understanding that, well, that's, that's your life and that happened and uh, accepting it and you can move on. Um, then you can stop fighting it on a subsequent uh, constant basis and that would indeed free up more willpower for uh, for other challenges um, I mean this is this is speculation I don't you know, I've done research on childhood uh, problems and traumas and things like that that would make um, a yeah, that would make a lot of sense. There's actually an indirect effect. So it's yes, actually, an indirect effect. Um, not having so much of a drain. Uh, yeah, because and that's, and that's consistent with it. Well, certainly the theory around the, the proponents of one's ability to go back and resolve old trauma is this idea that we have defense mechanisms that are constantly working in our subconscious. And maybe there may be some questions about the extent of our subconscious or the nature of it, but nonetheless their, their their view is that we have subconscious mechanisms which are there to suppress and repress old feelings associated with with old memories that, that are constantly running uh and then uh, that we sort of act on top of those our, our conscious thoughts and our actions are actually in some yeah. sense a projection of what's happening there and and actually i've yeah so the theory would be that over time we we have less need of those defenses um, we become more authentic, but e equally, we're not using energy to suppress and repress feelings. Yes, and defenses very likely take take some of this energy, and uh, even if they're not fully conscious, uh, um, they could still well sap, sap your energy. And, and that takes away a key part of what you can use for your vitality in life. Mm. life. Yeah. Okay, and uh, I'd like to know what, what's next for you or what's current for you. I mean, where, where are you taking the science at the moment? What, what, what's your focus? Um, well, um, my current um, research projects are studying how people think about the future. Uh, well, that's, a, that's another line of work. Um, and the, the link, there is some link to self-control. You know, self-control uh, involves planning. Uh, pre-commitments, things like that. Uh, but it's uh, um, to me, it's it's not 
a direct outgrowth of the uh, um, the self-control research. Uh, the the self-control research, when it started to link to making decisions, and we needed a bigger umbrella, and that sort of got me into the philosophical issues of free will. Uh, so I've been thinking about those terms. That's an extensive literature and multiple fields, you know, arguing about uh, in what sense do and do not people have free will as that operate with things. And then to me, the, the, the thinking about the future is, is an important part of that. And the way I, I look at it, um, whether, either, okay, put it this way, uh, human beings, we control our behavior. There's a mechanism inside us that controls and decides what to do. That's way more complex and advanced than what's seen in any other species. Now, whether it deserves the name free will or not, that's kind of a semantic argument, and I'll leave that to the, the, the philosophers and the, the experts there. But you know, that's the reality behind it, and, and, and understanding that 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 is a good job for a psychologist. Um, so, uh, in in that connection, it's it's always exciting to be working on a big classic problem like free will that people have debated for a long time. Um, so uh, that's something I'm, uh, I'm I'm working on as well. Right. And any, any sort of early surprises in, in that research, something you weren't expecting to discover around? Oh, I'm thinking about the I'm future? Planning. Yeah, future. Oh, planning. Um, well, or both. Well, I mean, I was using those as equivalent, but perhaps they're not actually thinking about the future. Yeah. Um, well, uh, people do a lot of planning. Most of the time when they say they're thinking about the future, they're planning. Uh, just a little bit of, a, I guess, a surprise to the psychologists because mostly when they say, oh, we should study how people think about the future, they start with prediction. And uh, you know, can you predict what's going to happen? But um, more and more, I think it's not predicting how things will turn out. That's not the goal. It's predicting the choice points, the crossroads. You, know, you want to predict even like tomorrow, what are the points at which it can go different ways? Because those are the ones I need to be prepared to deal with. And I can use pre-commitment or advanced rational thought or whatever. Uh, but, you know, at some point someone's come up with you and say, what are you going to do, this or this? You know, you, you don't want to be starting to think about it, right? Then you want to uh, be prepared to deal with it. Or your choices are one, and also performances. So, you know, where are the points where you can do well or badly? And you want to be prepared to do a, a, a good job for that. Uh, um, so, um, the future really that's, is not predicting the outcome, but uh, calling the matrix of maybe, you know, the, the, okay. the place a bunch of different possibilities that some will happen and some won't. And those are the things you, you most want to anticipate and be prepared for. And you think that's more productive to put thought into potential scenarios than to um, attempt to predict the future? Is that the... the yes, yes, yes. I think that uh, is Jim Collins who did the good to great work. I looked at people who managed companies that really uh, got better and stayed better for a long time. And it was a, a nice data-based way of saying who the best leaders are. Um, and... He found that they weren't any better than the others at predicting the future or what's going to happen, uh, but they were more thorough about all the different possibilities and contingency plans. So uh, if things didn't go according to their preferred way, they had a backup plan ready and they had, they had alternatives. So again, it's not being able to predict how it's all going to end up, but to predict 
all the contingencies and possibilities and, and, and you know, be prepared for uh, uh, the strange twists of fate uh, that uh, happen to us because you know, very rarely does everything go according to plan. Mm, that's interesting. That's consistent with some of the people. We've had a couple of con complexity theorists on the show and they definitely have the view that um, we, we're way less well-equipped to predict the future than we, we think we are. <laughs> okay, good, good. Yeah. Nice. We, uh, it's almost as if, yeah, well, I think there has been work on our biases um, that, uh, that have humans oh, be overconfident in their ability to predict the future. Um, yeah. But that also seemed to touch on something that you wrote about, I think, again, in the cultural element about this, the, the distinction between Western and Eastern thinking and how the Eastern mind is perhaps more likely to be able to ascribe multiple causes for a particular outcome would that then lend itself to being more open to this style of thinking about the future or, or do you see a connection there or not oh well, that's a fascinating idea i've, I've not uh, done any cross-cultural comparisons on that i mean yes there's a more holistic thinking in the uh, in the, the eastern mind and so they uh see things as much more interrelated and are more comfortable with things switching back and forth as well um, but it's it's also uh, suited to a, a style of mind where it's not where you individually don't have as much control. So uh, uh, some of our studies, when Easterners you know have an opportunity for control and the need to do control, then they switch and uh, um, turn to be more like Westerners to uh, you know, think in the Western analytical style of what exactly causes what and what's going on because that that helps them. Uh, uh, deal with the, uh, things mm. but as a disposition it may be that yeah be, well, that may be a hypothesis worth testing isn't it with dispositionally yes, yes. the eastern mind yes. is, is better equipped for this or suited for this scenario style thinking of the future great okay well uh well thank you that sounds fascinating do, do you expect a book at some point i mean you, you're prolific when you're uh, book writing it did have me think god you must have this willpower lick to uh, be as productive as you are on the book writing no thanks i i, I do like writing and uh it's hard to, um right now i'm writing a book on the self um and so uh when that's done there are several options as to which one will be uh, next i hope to have it done in about a year uh, but it's, it's one of the big psychology problems of self and identity and uh, how do we know what we are and become what we are. So some of this will find its way in there and certainly self-control is a big part of it. Um, but uh, um, you know, immediate plans to write a book on the self. Actually, Martin Seligman and I just, uh, two other guys just published one, uh, I think uh, last year. Um, it was a, an early compilation. Uh, of thinking about the future, uh, but there's there's much more since we're now collecting all sorts of data. I hope to know more about it in five years. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, and then my, my final question: I ask a lot of my my guests, what for you is it to be human? What uh, to be? Uh, well, I wasn't prepared for that um, um, I mean one of my colleagues here Thomas Sudendorf has a book called the gap which talks about the difference between humans and other species and evolutionary uh, 
uh, analysis there. Um, so, you know, that's my point of departure. You know, that, yes, we are animals, but we're also more than animals. Uh, and we have styles of, of, of mind, of, of thinking and feeling and acting that are uh, above and beyond what other animals do. And that's why we created this marvelous situation, uh, civilization uh, and culture. Uh, but it includes things like morality and uh, concern with reputation and self-control. Um, people deal in information uh, much more than other animals. They deal in money. Uh, they're moral agents too, the understanding of morality. I'm not religious, but uh, again, religion is a very important part of the human experience and something that sets us apart from other creatures. Uh, so yeah, the, the symbolic realm, the understanding of language, the advanced uh, form of consciousness, all these things I think are really uh, uh, vital parts of, uh, of being human. Awesome, okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. Um, and uh, and I'm, I'm really excited about, about the next book. And uh, I'll have to be honest, I didn't realize you had another book with Martin Seligman, so I should check that out as well. Um, okay, yeah. We'll, um, we'll put links to everything we've mentioned in the description for the show. Okay. Well, thanks, Richard, for the great conversation. And um, let's talk again. And, and in, in terms of places to find you on the internet, where, where is best? I mean, do you... Do you do much on the internet, or is it many of books? I'm I'm not that I don't do the internet for its own sake. I'm not on Facebook or those things. I, I have a homepage that somebody maintains for me, right? Um, and uh, and so on. I mean, you can Google my name and find find things okay. there. But but uh, the you know I think the scientific publications and the the books are the main place to uh, uh, my contribution to. To humanity and civilization is pretty fun. <laughs> okay. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much again. Thanks for your time. It's been a, it's been a fascinating okay. and, and rewarding conversation. And thank you for the contribution to my life, of especially the Willpower book. It's, it's, it has, okay. it has thank you. Been, it's very nice of you. Thanks for uh, a, a, a real contribution to my quality of my life. Okay. Thank you so much. Have a, okay. uh, have a great day, Bye. evening. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.